as the U.S. company continue to face more and more restriction going forward, they need to much more be more prudent, which I think is the right thing to do. But then you have a market called China essentially close out from all the Western high tech company, but that domestic company can accumulate more and more data and continue to work on artificial intelligence in terms of machine learning. Now that has a huge implication on who's gonna lead the next wave of technological breakthrough. on average read 60 books per year. Many attribute their professional success to this persistent quest for new wisdom and innovative excellence. MentorBox makes it easy for you to develop that same high-achieving habit of lifelong learning. As a person of action, you know that true ingenuity is the result of deep learning and knowledge. And just by listening to this podcast, you are working towards your goals every single day. If you are ready to wholly embrace this mindset, this 1% better every day, then check in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for new episodes. And if you want to dive deeper into the teachings of our guests, become a member at mentorbox.com today. There you'll find new lessons uploaded several times a week, including one from Howard Yu, who is Professor of Strategy and Innovation at IMD, as well as the Director of Three-Week Advanced Management Program Executive Education Course. In 2015, Professor Yu was selected by Poets and Quants as one of the world's best 40 under 40 business school professors. Besides having published in academic journals such as Business History Review, his writing has also appeared in popular media outlets, including the New York Times, Harvard Business Review, Fortune, Forbes, MIT Sloan Management Review, The Financial Times, and Shanghai Daily. Howard and I discuss his upcoming release, Leap, How to Thrive in a World Where Everything Can Be Copied, a business book about the acceleration of innovation and the future of competition, how to deal with it as a manager. We also talk about the future of brick and mortar retail and the consequences of China's social credit score. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. My name is Joy Folks. I lead the content strategy here at MentorBox, and today I'm subbing in for Tyler while he is launching Alex's Engine in Los Angeles. Howard, thank you so much for coming to the studio today. We really enjoyed recording your video book lesson with MentorBox. Thank you very much. It's my great pleasure to be here. So Howard and I had some amazing conversations in between takes, and one of them was regarding the future of retail, both in America, but in the world at large. Um, Howard, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you think is going to happen in the future of brick and mortar? Yeah, as we see the decline of brick and mortar store, I think one of the deep implications is what's the future for brands as well, right? Um, in many ways, if we're looking at the e-commerce landscape from uh, Amazon to Alibaba, the way they do it is really commoditized brand in the sense that you go onto the website, you're looking at pictures of the product and immediately it triggers consumer to do much more price comparison and reading off the description of a product based on tax. Now, that doesn't really help with building a brand aspiration and 
or the fantasy or what the brand identity is all about. And so the future retelling probably we would continue to see a decline in terms of the big box retailer who are basically using their real estate to push product. Instead, we probably would see the emergence of future retailing is really projecting that customer experience. The retailing estate becoming the showroom to showcase what that brand is all about. And we have already seen quite a bit of traction across the world, in fact. I remember there is a little milk farm corporate. They went to China. And as they go expand the geographical footprint in China, you have to work with Alibaba, no doubt. But consistently, what they have done from Shanghai to Beijing is to launch a number of pop-up stores using AR and VR technologies to invite Chinese consumer to use those technologies to see, oh, how's the milk farm operate in Holland and transport the consumer across the ocean and see how the production process looks like. And, and it's bringing this brand identity to life. And I think partially of that notion, how do you change your retail footprint from pushing product itself into much more projection of a brand require new type of capabilities as well. And so that involves, you know, including the customer, thinking about what a customer wants. Can you tell us a little bit more about design thinking and how that plays a part in the future of retail? Yeah, because in many ways, yes, the kind of big data analytics are very, very important. And as much as we can, in terms of the retail footprint, you want to use a lot of embedded sensors to measure customer inflow and outflow who's coming to your store. That is all important. But then there are always the unarticulated pain point that customer can never tell you and a machine can never correlate an answer automatically for you. And this is where the design thinking as a framework becomes very important in the sense that it channel an organization energy towards a customer to understand empathetically what are those real-life issues that the customer may not even be able to articulate and the industry have never imagined before. But here you have a situation where once you automate a lot of the mundane administrative tasks of your salespeople, then you can free up their time and resources and effort to really identify and uncovering these pain points and reimagine what are some of these solutions are. It doesn't need to be radical, but it's also a way of accumulating organizational knowledge to unleash the next wave of growth. So we've established that there's two pain points, right? That we're looking at customer satisfaction, the experience of actually going to a room, feeling as if you're fulfilling a fantasy or you're learning something. There's a surprise element, correct? There's also a customer, customer satisfaction element, right? Making sure that you love the product. And then finally, you're looking at a price conversion, making sure that you're getting the best deal for your dollar. Now, what is the last experience that you've had in retail where you felt like all of those pain points were hit? As much as I'm not too sporty, I was so enchanted by a pair of sneakers uh, showcased in the Adidas uh, flagship store in New York City. I never thought I would be even, you know, being attracted to a pair of sneakers selling or close to 300 bucks. But here you have, once you walk in, all those outrageous design I normally would associate as ugliness under spotlight and under the description of the creator, the purpose becomes 
Very important. In fact, this is how you enhance your athletic performance. The whole retail space uh, uh, resemble almost like um, a stadium. In fact, whole staircase transfer to the stadium seatings. And once I lift off some of the model of the sneakers at the back of the screen, it automatically becomes an AR display that I can turn the sneakers, point out certain point of the sneakers on the display. It describes to me why they build the shoes that way. To me, it's for the first. Time, if I were to buy a pair of serious sneakers, I would go for Adidas because the engineer seems to be so passionate about their own creation. As I walk through the store, a lot of people there, shoppers, I mean, they are not speaking English. They're speaking Thai. They're speaking Italian. They're all tourists, and you can almost see as they go back home. This is how they spread the message across their cohort, and I think it does represent something about retailing as well. Yes, you can buy stuff there, and there are lots of shoppers there in terms of the busyness itself. But it's no longer just pushing product, but it's to how to bring a product in terms of its image and their identity, bring it to life to a much wider audience. Bearing in mind, in the space of e-commerce, when your channel is massively commoditized, your brand, this is the only way to fight back and to attain a price premium. Now, your book is about companies that take the next leap, right? Who predict certain changes within company culture or within、uh, innovation at large and make the choice to improve. You mentioned Alibaba, right? And in your interview、uh, with MentorBox, you refer to WeChat, which is an amazing example. Can you tell us a couple other companies that are doing these big leverage changes? Yeah, one of the company in my research that came across rather surprisingly is a、um, classified post company from Japan. Now, classified post and yellow page, you would associate they should have died.、Um, they were founded almost sixty years ago, and today they have completely transformed into internet service based provider. In fact, a PE ratio price. Of their stock price per earning is at par with Google and Facebook, so I was become very intrigued in terms of their corporate transformation. So what they've done essentially is, when everybody was scared about moving digital, they were the first pioneer who moved their physical magazine or classified post online. Now they were making money for the first three years; their corporate earning dropped by a third. But they basically have mastered the golden rule of the internet. First, you need to build a huge customer base. Then the opportunity to monopolize,、uh, to monetize, comes later. And this is the first way of their know-how. But secondly, more importantly, instead of having their salespeople going around town and asking people to put ads on their classified posts. They transform the job nature of these salespeople. They have their salespeople going out together with their programmers, software programmers, to understand what are the unarticulated need, say, of a beauty salon or a small-time restaurant owner. How can we help this small-time restaurant owner to do their business better? As a result. They launched something similar to Square. As a result, they launched something similar to Yelp. As a result, they launch an app that customer and customer can queue up at the restaurant using an app as well. So over time, they basically build up this capability, almost like a vertical stack that solves the customer problem so holistically that the senior management team said, 
you know, if Facebook just come in and try to destroy us, it's actually quite difficult because they not necessarily understand the customer need as well as we does. So I think the future of the e-commerce or the internet is really this merging between offline and online data together to provide a seamless, holistic customer experience. That's probably the winning formula. And can you explain this concept of the stack? I think that, you know, you hear this a lot in Silicon Valley, but for um, people outside of California or in the business world, what does it mean when a company has a stack happening? Yeah, so um, if you compare and contrast of the classic model of an internet startup versus WeChat and Recruit Holding, the Japanese company I just mentioned, there's a, a fundamental difference. So when Yelp, for example, comes in or Facebook comes comes in, they would focus on growth through the user base. Essentially, they are providing a very narrow focus product or services, but try to spread across different geographical markets as fast as possible. So Uber, for example, they try to expand international fairly rapidly using the same design of an app without additional services much until most recently, they don't have Uber Eat now that they do. When I mention about a vertical stack, essentially you provide a lot of complementary offering from your core and branch out to new services along the way. So WeChat is the largest social media app in China. Historically, they are the iMessage or WhatsApp copycat. They only allow people to text each other, but quite rapidly they move into mobile payment that people can put You know, in China, you have the Lunar New Year or the Chinese New Year. People would give each other money in the form of red envelope. So they provide digital red envelope that uh, parents can give this digital money to their kids or friends. In fact, it's almost like a little mini lottery that you can nominate 20 bucks on the web and people need to bid. Some people could get a dollar. Some people may get five. Some people would laugh. Some people would grin. So this whole idea that you need to move from one surface to another, then to another, is what I call a vertical stack. The result is you would understand the customer's life situation much more holistically rather than competing on almost like a commoditized-like competition. You are able to understand the customer need much better as a result. You probably in a much stronger position to defend your uh, market share. Now, this brings up the larger question of data, right? So they're acquiring all this information from WeChat. You know, when you walk your dog, who walks your dog? What kind of food the dog eats? Uh, why you chose that particular dog compared to another breed? Um, there's so much information about time minutia. We don't really understand why this is so valuable, but uh, how valuable is it exactly? Extraordinary, right? I think. And it's not just WeChat. I was talking to a Chinese company doing bike sharing, bicycle sharing called Ovo. And then the other one is Mobike. And what they know is they know exactly where you're riding the bike at what time and which neighborhood you are around and what store you park your bike outside. And if you are trying to get into the advertising model, which they haven't yet, the tremendous value is like, you know, it's hard to imagine how much money you can put on. And what's interesting is, of course, in the US and in Europe, we have a huge debate around the protection of privacy and probably there will be much stronger clamp down in terms of how much data one can accumulate and you need customer consents and so on. 
But in China, data privacy doesn't exist, simply because the consumer don't expect such, and it's a very nascent market. And I think one emerging phenomena here is, as the U.S. company continue to face more and more restriction going forward, they need to much more be more prudent, which I think is the right thing to do. But then you have a market called China essentially close out from all the Western high tech company, but that domestic company can accumulate more and more data and continue to work on artificial intelligence in terms of machine learning. Now that has a huge implication on who's gonna lead the next wave of technological breakthrough, and I think this is actually the most important conversation among policymakers. That while we're protecting consumer right, how can we make sure our industry cluster can continue to stay on top of the artificial intelligent development going forward? I want to pause this conversation to tell you about a fun fact that Howard told in his MentorBox video book lesson. In 1975, an employee at Kodak invented the first digital camera. However, it never saw the light of day. Why? Kodak feared it would threaten their film development business, which they're paying for today. Want to learn when to double down on a competitive market and when to hold your cards? Watch Howard and other incredible business authors at MentorBox today. I've always thought that these EU privacy changes that are happening will become infectious in the United States, that we will naturally adopt them too, because if they're going to regulate for the EU, why wouldn't they regulate for the U.S. as well, predicting the next government changes? But you're saying it's so valuable that they will neglect it for our audience and maintain it for the EU. That way they can collect the data that's necessary. Mm -hmm. And then China obviously is riper picking grounds because... There are no restrictions. That's right. And what you see in China is the emergence of different business model and different application using data and automation. I remember in Shanghai, I was using a public restroom in a park. And over there, the uh, dispenser of tissue paper is, is rationed by facial recognition. And people don't even talking about payment on mobile. Uh, they talk about pay by face and the social credit score, which looks almost anathema to our Western eyes. In China, that seems to be the right thing to do. And so is this disjoint between two major markets, the US and China, I think it would affect what type of innovation and trajectory coming out. And what policymakers really need to understand is to balance between the consumer protection as well as the strength of an industry cluster as a whole. Now, let's clarify the social credit score. We talked about this briefly um, when we were shooting today. If you've watched Black Mirror, mm -hmm. I think you'll be familiar with a particular episode in the most recent season about this. But what is China doing with the social credit score? What is a social credit score exactly? And do you think it will ever happen in the U.S.? Yeah, so the idea of the credit uh, score in China really came about when Alibaba making a big push into the payment system and they have a subsidiary called Ant Financial there. And what they see is, you know, in order to make decision for merchant to extend either credit or privilege, it's better to understand how trustworthy the end consumer is because China got a big population. There are, there are many, many migrant workers. So that erosion of social trust has always been a problem. In China, there's this term, meaning, you know, the swindle is happening all around us. And so for 
merchants and for consumer and for the general public, they seem to be quite enamored with the notion that if we know who is most likely to cheat, we can take precaution. Now, again, the social context is very different than here in the US or in Europe. So here you have a situation where the uh, social credit score by evaluating who's being friend with whom, what is your likelihood to jaywalk on the street, how likely you're gonna, you know, park your car and, 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 and not paying on time. All this becomes part of the equation and reflect on a single score. To the extent that you can imagine in the near-term future, one can get access to priority to restaurant booking, to hotel booking. We don't know whether that happened or not, uh, God forbid, but even hospital treatment, right? There probably be a lot of conversation within China as well. The biggest problem with algorithm, the way I see it, including Facebook and Google, is opaque. Nobody knows what kind of algorithm is inside and nobody can have an independent bureau to appeal. That's not humane. Now, if the algorithm can be made transparent, if people have a, you know, disciplined way of making an appeal and will take action to correct akin to our credit scorecard system right now, although that's not perfect, then I think that's that's acceptable. But uh, where we are right now continue to be quite opaque and there's no appeal mechanics. And that's probably the next wave of change that we're going to see soon. Let's say that I'm a goody two-shoes, that I do everything correctly. I park my car in the right place. Uh, I help someone cross the street. Why wouldn't I want a social credit score if it's going to give me priorities? Yeah, I think for those who are privileged, they would disproportionately be benefited from the system. But that is also a classic situation where you would engender more and more social inequality. For someone who's born in a bad neighborhood, no matter which country we're talking about, his or her behavior probably would be a little bit more borderline. And his social network, the friends that he or she has, the school he or she went, probably would have a detrimental impact on the uh, social credit. And if the social credit becomes a disenabler rather than an enabler for social mobility, not only is not a good thing, but it also would uh, instigate a lot of social unrest, I think. Okay. I want to pivot this conversation for a moment and ask you, what keeps you up at night, Howard? Yeah. I mean, in many ways, when I talk to executives and uh, manager, they always felt like we are living in a world of accelerated change. I myself is an author and writer and teacher. I hardly can keep up with my writing with the changing <laughs> changing scope. Um, and so I, I think what keeps me up at night is this idea, how can we really separate signal from the noise? Particularly when, for example, when we talk about social credit, is one thing popping up, but how can we distill the fundamental and so that going forward, we can navigate the future with a much stronger point of view. And I think it's this idea of sense-making is increasingly more and more important because no AI can help us to sense-make about the changing world. With all this data proliferating, in the end, you still need a human to understand the human condition, to make sense of our culture. And what keeps me at night is how can I go beyond just the data and, and just all these changes, but understand the meaning behind so that I don't bat on the wrong direction. Yeah, I mean, especially when you're having a computer beat go, right? When that is happening in society, when something's so intelligent, how do you make sure that you're smarter than 
uh, standard analytics. Exactly right. And if you're thinking about education with something as a smart machine like you know Go or IBM Watson, the job of an educator will change massively. The job of an author will change massively. Bearing in mind, right now, I heard something each quarter, three thousand of the article. Written by Associated Press are、uh, written by robots. So I had no idea. You know, the mundane article is already being automated. So yes, I try to make sense. I try to have a flair in my narratives. But you know, disruptive innovation always starts from the low end, and eventually the game is over for the incumbent. So even for educator, right? We have to really think back. What do we mean? By knowledge dissemination, what aspect of that knowledge dissemination can be easily automated and copied, and we should let that go? And what exactly is the future role of researcher and professors? Wow, that's definitely going to keep me up tonight.、Um, I think that I've always been obsessed with you know the reading levels of different publications and how they make these decisions about their user base and their audience. But the idea that a robot is writing an article that they can predict what that level is and make those certain editorial changes is shocking,、uh, especially someone in the arts. You think that you're irreplaceable. Let's hit one other question. Uh, in terms of lessons that you've learned throughout your life,、uh, what is an important lesson that's been communicated to you from a mentor? And then, what is a lesson that you've given a mentee? So, I think one of the biggest early imprint on me,、um, the mentor is probably not a human, but an incident.、Um, I was born and raised in Hong Kong, and、uh, back in seventies and eighties,、uh, Hong Kong is being the Of the East, because we have this massive manufacturing cluster in Hong Kong, and before long, of course, the whole cluster imploded and jobs moved to China. And it was at the time that all the free market economists they they haven't yet worried about you know job migration and foreign competition. But here in Hong Kong, we experience firsthand. I remember towards the end of my first job, before we graduate from college. Everyone has already mentioning about you know how to reinvent oneself. So that kind of early imprint、uh, made a deep impression to me. If we were to prosper or simply to survive, we have to reinvent ourselves again and again. And I think that is also one of the big big thrusts that why I write this book. And so today, when my student asks me what should I look for or ask me for career advice, it's less so about the salary. Purpose and and what you like to do obviously count, but it's also the job nature of what the company can provide to you. The last thing you want is to master a skill that is so narrow that sooner or later it will get automated. Bearing in mind, even radiologist or certain part of the cancer treatment diagnosis. Is being automated. So what we need to think about is how can you get yourself off the ground after college to be in a job position that you get exposed to different domain of the operation that you actually have a much broader skill set rather than narrow defined job expertise. And the last bit that I passed on to、uh, to my students would be、um, you have to take control of your own agenda. We're also busy. Most of us working out of our daily plan of our inbox email. We essentially render ourselves into human router. And in the age of automation, the last thing you want is to become a human router. You actually need to spend more time to do creative work, chunks of 
big time that you can become creative. So regaining your own agenda through discipline is indispensable in order to pick up a new skill fast. So I want to hit on this just for a second. You, when we first came into our studio today, you pointed out Cal Newport's work, Deep Work, uh, which goes into this, the idea that you have to separate time and really put an investment into the research that you do, the creative actions you take. And you mentioned that you wanted your research to reach the level of his, that you didn't even know if that was possible. I think that's really interesting. You're a brilliant man. um, And still you have moments where you question the future of your expertise, right? That there are limits to every single person. What are certain thresholds that you're looking to reach in life that you think will certify yourself? (laughs) That's a big, big question. I think for business school academics, um, the danger is we would end up producing research that bears no practical relevance because the way the business school academic is structured for once to get tenured, you want to publish in scientific journal and that readership is closed out in the sense it's a closed system. But what Ultimately, the mission of a business school and educator is to disseminate knowledge and creating knowledge that has real impact in the real world. And so my feeling is, you know, if one day I could really make sense of the world and disseminate that learning with practical guidelines and toolkit for practicing manager so that they could do their job better, um, I think that's the ultimate mission for an educator and a business school as well. Amazing. Um, Before I let you go, uh, you have a book coming out in June called Leap. Would you tell our listeners a little bit about it before uh, we say goodbye? Sure. Um, The book Leap, uh, the subtitle is How to Thrive in a World When Everything Can Be Copied. So a lot of the time, managers were afraid of low-cost competition, foreign company who are encroaching your market space. But secondary, as we talked about earlier, even human expertise can be reduced to algorithm and get copied overnight. This is where the book thrusts is about. In the world when everything can be copied, how can individuals make decisions? Whether you are an executive leading a multinational, whether you're a startup entrepreneur or even an individual employee trying to navigate the future, that is the main thrust of the book. So this book will be available in June 2018. I highly encourage you to pick it up. I learned a lot about stories and companies that were outside of the U.S., which I think is very rare for the business market today. Thank you so much for coming in today, Howard. It's my great pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to the MentorBox podcast. If you want to learn more about what our authors as well as all of our authors teach, make sure to sign up at MentorBox.com. And if you like the MentorBox podcast, please leave us a positive rating and review in Apple Podcasts, as that helps us get discovered by more people who will enjoy and be helped by what we do over here at MentorBox. Also, if you think of anyone who would enjoy or be helped by what we do here at MentorBox, be sure to let them know. We do what we do at MentorBox to try to make the world a better place through the incredible education our authors bring. And we can only do that through your help. So please help us spread the word. Again, thanks for listening. And we'll see you in the next MentorBox podcast.